Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you did not bring a Bible, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath the seat around you. You're more than welcome to grab one of those and turn with us. Hebrews chapter 12, glad you're here. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at First Colony. Um, we're in the middle of a sermon series right now called Finding God on Your iPod. Uh, this is our fourth week in the series. And what we've been doing is we've been taking... Um, lyrics, songs that are popular to our culture, and we've been putting them in conversation with the gospel and with the scriptures. And so I think it's been a, a good time so far. We've done Demons by Imagine Dragons. We did uh, Royals by Lord. Last week we did a U2 song, Invisible. Now this week, I've got to warn you, is our uh, week that I promised to our first service. So we've got two services, if you're not aware. Our first service is kind of our, our older crowd, okay? Um, and so I, I promised them at the get-go that I was not going to just do all songs that they had never heard of by bands they had never heard of. So we were going to go back in time, and we were going to find one, um, at least one from their kind, of, their kind of time that's in their pocket that they're comfortable with. And so this is that week. Um, I do think that you'll still enjoy it, and I still think that we found a, a, a band and a song that I think has survived the test of time. Uh, one of the things I love about this series that we've done, Finding God in Your iPod, is it makes it a legitimate uh, activity for me to just listen to music as sermon work, right? And so earlier this week, someone is in my office, and, and they're kind of just, uh, you know, shooting the breeze. So, okay, I, you got to get out. I got to work. I got stuff to do. Sorry. Uh, I'll talk to you later. And so they leave, and they come back a couple minutes later. They've forgotten something, and I'm just sitting there listening to the Beatles. And they're like, what are you doing? You're just listening to music. But like, I'm working on a sermon, okay? Get out of my business. Leave me alone. Um, we are. We're, we're doing the Beatles today, okay? Maybe the, uh, yeah, we've got some, this is actually the most emotion we've had for a band <laughs> for the four weeks here. Uh, possibly the biggest artist, okay, in modern history, the Beatles. I don't know if any of you saw this. This has been a really kind of timely series just with cultural events. You had the Grammys not too long ago. Um, last Sunday, CBS ran a special on the Beatles, okay? It's called The Night That Changed America. Because last Sunday, February 9th, was the 50-year anniversary of the Beatles' American debut on the Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, and so for uh, a while, they'd been getting popular in the States, and this was the first time for Americans to actually see with their eyes uh, who all their kids have been listening to. And um, from what I'm told, again, first service, we have a handful of people who remember that night uh, in 64, okay, watching that Sullivan Show. Um, 60% of the nation, apparently, tunes in to watch the show. Uh, now, they don't have thousands of channels, you know, and all the, you know, cable stuff that we have now. Um, but 60% of the nation tunes in, and I'm told that parents everywhere let out a sigh of relief, expecting to see like these like tattered and tattoos and leather pants and all those kind of things. And so they see these clean-cut uh, British boys, okay, singing these nice pop songs. It's like, okay, well, we're a little bit okay with our daughters falling in love with these kids. Um, but after that, I mean, they just blew up. Billboard has said uh, a couple years ago they're the most successful band in all of history. Um, Rolling Stone said they're the greatest artist that's ever existed. Um, they officially, in 2014, have still sold the most albums and most songs of any band um, in the modern era. I mean, just hugely, hugely, hugely popular. Again, we saw in Acts 17, Paul goes and preaches the gospel um, to the people in Athens, and he starts by quoting their own poets and philosophers. He says, here are some song lyrics you're familiar with that have captured the imagination and attention of your culture, your society. And here's how they bridge us to the gospel. Here's how they point us to Christ and point us to life and Christ. That's what we're trying to do with this series. And the Beatles have been one of this, this artists, these artists who've, who've just captured our imaginations. They're our poets, they're our philosophers, they, they represent our doubts and our hopes and our dreams, and, and we just like to listen to them. I mean, they're just a popular, popular, popular band. So this morning the song is Eleanor Rigby. 
which is my actual favorite song from the Beatles. I have to admit, confession time, the first time I ever heard Eleanor Rigby was a cover that was done of it by kind of a hard rock metal band. So they're screaming it, and it's got loud guitars and loud drums. And it was a couple years until I figured out that they didn't write the song. Okay, it was a cover of another band from the 60s, okay, the Beatles. Um, Eleanor Rigby, this is a, uh, one of the more popular songs um, from the Beatles. I think it's been ranked 137th uh, by Billboard out of the top 500 songs in all of history. Um, it was off their 66th album, Revolver. There's a famous songwriter, um, Jerry Lieber, who uh, he wrote, actually helped write Hound Dog. Have you, Hound Dog, you ain't nothing but a Hound Dog. Uh, Jailhouse Rock and then Stand By Me he is actually real famous for saying he thinks this is the best written song he's ever heard um, just lyrically and musically the way it's all put together and kind of this haunting uh, narrative it kind of stays with you and so Eleanor Rigby will listen to it um, like we do there's not really a music video but we'll have a couple pictures going across the screen we'll listen to it uh, then we'll dive in and see maybe how Hebrews 12 uh, takes us from this this poet and this philosopher into the gospel and into the Christian life. So here it is, Elmer Rigby by the Beatles. cut. Now the song itself is actually different from a lot of the Beatles songs, particularly at the time that they had been coming out with. Most of their songs were very optimistic, kind of upbeat pop songs. And this was this kind of haunting, almost like a funeral type song. And those lines that just kind of stay with you and make you a little depressed about the world. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? You've got these two characters that the song follows. It's just like a short two minutes. I mean, it's right at two minutes of the song. And it, but it feels almost like there's this novel kind of tucked inside of it. You've got Eleanor Rigby. You've got a, a father, a, a, a pastor, a priest, Father McKenzie. Um, Eleanor Rigby starts out. Um, you were told that she's living this kind of fake life. She, she's got no one around her who knows her. Okay? She's going to churches after this big festivals and parties and weddings are over and, and pretending that she's a part of it. She's sitting there by herself during the day. Then we're told you have this Father McKenzie who's writing the words of a sermon. No one will hear, and he just works and works and works at night, and, and no one comes. And then in this kind of grim irony, these two people have been lonely their whole lives, finally cross paths. But it's at the death and the, the funeral of Eleanor Rigby, the last verse. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father McKenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. I mean, this is this kind of sad, haunting, desperate um, narrative that you're left with. Eleanor Rigby lives and dies alone. She's buried along with her name and is forgotten. And then the father who does the ceremony is preaching these sermons to nobody no one's even showing up and no one's saved his life is seemingly meaningless and futile and the Beatles just sing hauntingly over it all the lonely people all the lonely people where do they all come from where do they all belong it's this kind of uh, critique of the loneliness that's kind of invaded our culture and 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 scarily it sometimes invaded our churches um, where we have churches where people go unnoticed and we have churches where people are not known and are not able to share with other people. They, they like Eleanor Rigby, maybe sit there with no one knowing them in a community with them, or like Father McKenzie, perhaps have no one listening to them, no one they can share with. The Beatles, I think, uh, critique hauntingly this, this crippling loneliness that's common to our culture. You might call the song a lyrical expose of the frightening consequences of individualism. And I think this is something that, as Christians, we need to be um, very aware of. Uh, and that's a danger to us, I think, particularly in the time and places where we live, 
the temptation is always there as Christians to make church into uh, this small little building and place that we go to once a week instead of this people group that we belong to. Instead of this community that we are invested into, a place where we can know others and then be known ourselves. This is what Eleanor Rigby was missing. No one knew her. No one came and had community with her. And this is what Father McKenzie was missing. He, he wasn't able to share with others. He wasn't able to communicate the truths that, that he had experienced and that he had known. I worry that this could be a, a valid sung over our churches. When we look at, at our congregations on Sunday morning, and in the background we just hear all these lonely people. All these lonely people who have no connections, who have no community. And what you'll find in the scriptures is that this is a, a very dangerous thing in the New Testament. The New Testament is going to over and over and over again stress the importance of knowing and being known in order to live a healthy Christian life. This is all over the place. Hebrews 12 is where we want to be this morning. Um, and we want to talk about uh, just this importance of living in community. I want to encourage you in just a couple minutes this morning for you to dive in deeper into community. It's so important for you to be known and for you to know others uh, if you want to faithfully, I think, follow Jesus and live out the life that he's called us to live. We want to avoid Eleanor Rigby lives. We want to avoid Father McKenzie lives. And we don't want someone to be able to sing over us, all these lonely people who aren't known. We don't know anyone else. Hebrews 12, um, we'll pick it up in verse 1. This is a great little passage here, Hebrews 12. We'll read these first two verses. You will read with me. The author of Hebrews writes this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, the book of Hebrews is written by a pastor to his local congregation. And, and kind of the main message of Hebrews over and over and over again is keep going. I know there are distractions. I know there are obstacles. I know there are struggles to following Christ and being faithful to him. But keep going and keep helping each other. He'll say, don't stop meeting with each other. Don't stop praying with each other. Don't stop encouraging each other. Keep being faithful no matter what the world throws at you. Here he puts it in the form of an athletic metaphor. He says, keep running that race. Keep running after Christ. Keep him in your focus as you live your lives. Now I want you to notice, even in this passage, the Christian life is, is put in terms of a community life. Um, this is something that sometimes we miss if we're not careful when we're reading the Bible. Notice in just these two verses how many plural pronouns there are. Okay, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight. Let us run with endurance. Verse 2, looking at Jesus, the founder and director of our faith. He's talking to a, a local community of people who have decided to worship together who decide to live life with each other, to know and be known by each other. I think this is different than how I automatically view sometimes my relationship with Christ and my pursuit of Christ. When I read this verse, I'm prone to think of myself as the individual athlete. I'm running the race. And there are obstacles in my way, and there are distractions in my sight, and I need to keep my eyes on Christ. But the actual context here, the actual passages for this local community together to keep running... There's no solo participants in God's kingdom. 
It's not just you and Jesus. It's you and the community that you worship with, you and the community that you know and are known at. Uh, not too long ago, I encouraged you to read the Bible like a text. And I don't know if you remember this at the beginning of January. Um, a lot of the times in the, in the scriptures, the word you even um, is actually plural. It should be y'all. Uh, there are people out there who made Bible translations where there's a whole bunch of y'alls out, uh, throughout the Bible. Um, because the Bible, again, it's not written to single people. Jesus never imagined that there would just be this, this solo effort to follow him. Um, you and Christ, your, your own little personal private relationship. He, he imagined a community of people following after together. In fact, if you keep reading in Hebrews 12, you see this in verse 3. He says, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not resisted. These are plural yous. As good Texans, we want to go, this is y'all. Right? This is y'all. Consider him. Y'all, when y'all are running, when as a group you are heading towards Christ, as a group you are trying to be faithful. The church is not a place, it's not a building, it's not a time, it's a community of people. And I think it's so important for you and I, particularly in a culture that um, tempts us and pulls us towards seeing everything in individualistic terms, to consistently... And over and over and over again, go back and remind ourselves of our identity in a body, in a group, in a community. The scriptures will describe salvation less in terms of believing one or two certain ideas and less in terms of settling one or two fates for you after you die and more of you entering into a kingdom, entering into a community. Um, so there's a few metaphors you find a lot. You find the body of Christ described as the church, described as the family of God, brothers and sisters. When you become a Christian, um, it's less maybe about um, you know, settling your eternal fate and something that won't matter really to you until after you die, and more about being adopted into a new family, finding yourself having new brothers and new sisters, the family of God, your faith family. The scriptures also use the metaphor of the body. When you're um, joined with Christ, you become part of his body, which reaches out across all those who believe and follow him. We're connected, spiritually united. The scriptures talk about citizenship. We are um, made citizens in the nation of God's people. In a sense, becoming a Christian is transferring your citizenship. You're, you're joining in with a new group of people. This is not a group of people that are defined by social and economic status. It's not a group of people who are defined by geography. It's, it's transnational. We're brothers and sisters with those in Christ in, in Africa and in China and Australia and, and, and even Canada, if I could convince you of this, okay, I know, but, but, but even the Canadians are a part of this. A global body of Christ. Then verse 1 of this passage here, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, the kind of uh, motivation for this command to keep running and to keep going, is he's saying, look, we're, we've got this team on our side. You're part of this big body, this big movement. And in particular, what he's referring to is what he's just listed off in Hebrews 11, which is sometimes called this Hall of Faith, playing off of Hall of Fame, where, where the author lists off all these heroes of the faith. These people that apparently, when we become a Christian, we join their team. We become part of their movement. They're now our ancestors. They're a part of our heritage, these heroes of faith. Um, if you look in verse 32, he just starts kind of rattling off after talking about Moses and Abraham and a few of the big ones. In verse 32, he says, What more shall I say? 
Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women, he says, verse 35, received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept for release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were also killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. You've got some people here who are really famous, easy to recognize, Gideon, Samson, others that we're not sure exactly who he's referring to. But all of these are heroes who stand in the long tradition of those who have become part of the family of God. Verse 38, I love this little next little phrase here. One of my favorite in all the scriptures. Here's how he describes those people that he's listed off. He says this, of whom the world was not worthy. Of whom the world was not worthy. They had their eyes so set on the prize, so set on Christ. They had such strong faith that they would even endure suffering and martyrdom. And there's this sense where, where the, the world, I mean, it wasn't even worthy of them. They had no idea what they had in their midst. People who knew the living God. People who served him. People who were willing to sacrifice their lives. Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And he says, therefore... Since you have this great cloud of witnesses, this great audience in the stadium cheering you on, who've already gone on ahead of you, run, keep running, endure, don't fall. He says you're united not only with, and this is, I think, an interesting point for us as a, as a church community, as people who are Christians and, and have been united with the family of God, we're not just united with those who are uh, Christians in our local community. We are, but there's more to it than that. We're also united with Christians in the world living today, right? I'm, I'm, we are, in a real, actual sense, united with our brothers and sisters in, in Kenya right now. And with our brothers and sisters in, in Iraq and in Iran and our brothers and sisters in, in Mexico and in China and Australia. It's a global family, a global community, a global citizenship. But there's also this sense of, of trans-temporality, that, that we're united with people throughout time, throughout history, that when we become a Christian, we join this kind of movement that includes these great heroes of faith. Much in the same way that as Americans, we consider ourselves um, those who have come after founding fathers. Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, these people of our past who we say they were one of us. We follow <coughs> in their footsteps and their tradition. As Christians, we join this, this large procession of people who have known God and followed him. As one author has put it, there is momentum to the gospel. Before it reaches you and I, there's been this long movement from the time of Jesus of a community of people who have followed Christ, who have sacrificed their lives for him, who have been able to endure and run faithfully. The church is a community. It's a group of people that not only stretches across nations, statuses, but even throughout time. You and I are in the same family as Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, as Gideon and Samson. That's Paul. There's something about that that just energizes me, that, that, that gives me encouragement, that, that, that makes me just want to go do this, right? We're, we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, the author says. And then he gives this metaphor of running. He says, run. 
run and endure. Throw off anything that's going to hinder you, any weight that you might have, anything that's going to make you trip. So, so back in ancient Greece, you would actually run naked. I mean, butt naked. It seems odd to us. You wouldn't want to do it today, okay? Winter Olympics, not what you want to do. <laughs> but this was actually the event in the ancient world, the foot race. And you wouldn't wear the toga because the toga is going to trip you up. And so you, you, you strip, you get rid of everything that you have. Actually, the message translates this as strip naked. You can actually find a, a translation of the Bible that will tell you to strip, okay? It's, it's a command. It's part of the Bible. <laughs> get rid of anything that's going to keep you from running. As a community, let us find all the distractions and get rid of them. Let us find all the sins that are holding us down and, and exercise them. Put them away. It's an interesting metaphor, that of a race. I think one of the reasons why we're so prone to individualism, to thinking we can do this on our own, is that we often imagine the Christian life in easier terms than the scriptures put them in. Uh, so terms of, again, just like an acceptance or a prayer or a basic kind of orientation toward being kind or being nice. But the scriptures are going to ask of us very serious lifestyle decisions, very serious actions as are called of disciples of Christ, people who follow the risen Lord. And to be able to, to follow after that faithfully, you need a community. You need someone who, uh, a group of people who will be able to help you, who will be able to teach you, who will be able to correct you and challenge you if you need that, who will be able to, to pat you on the back and say, keep going. It's a team sport he's imagining here, not an individual sport. It's a team sport, not, a, not an individual sport. It's a race, he says. I don't know if, if you're a runner I am not a runner, but I think that helps for the metaphor here, right? Because when I'm running, I mean, the first thing that's happening is I'm doubting. I'm going, I can't take another step. This is not, this is not what I'm meant to do, okay? This is ungodly. This is <laughs> not making me a better person, okay? My knees hurt. My feet hurt. I'm out of breath. My lungs don't feel good. This is just not my idea of good time. I'd rather be sleeping right now, okay? Watching House of Cards. I don't know what it is, but I don't want to be running, I have these doubts. I can't do this. It hurts too bad. I get exhausted. I get burnt out. For me to run successfully, I've, I've figured this out. I've got to have someone beside me. I've got to have people that I, I don't want to be embarrassed in front of. I mean, that's really what it comes down to when you're running, right? I mean, you got to have another guy there where you're like, I'm not tired. Are you tired? People that can push you. People that can encourage you. I remember I uh, ran a 5K with Dustin over here. He's a track coach, and he was helping me out. And, and there'd be times where I'd be like, all right, I'm just going to walk. And he'd just be like, don't walk. And I'm like, okay, you're kind of scaring me right now. So I'm going to keep running, right? And after we got done, I looked at my time. I was so glad that I had someone who, who could just kind of put his, his voice in a deep mode and say, just keep going right now. Trust me on this one. Just keep running. I'm not going to let you stop right now. The Christian life is, is maybe a life where, where sometimes it hurts. Sometimes you doubt whether you can keep going. Sometimes you get burnt out. Sometimes you're exhausted and you can't catch your breath. I wonder if, if this way of thinking actually describes our experiences as Christians more faithfully than just an easy walk in the park. Where we're frolicking and the sun's out and there's puppy dogs playing. But if, we've, if we're scraping our knees, if our shoes are falling apart, if our lungs are burning with each breath, if we're wondering, I, I just honestly don't know if I can go up this hill coming up. I don't, I don't know if I can keep running. I was recently reading an author who was writing about doubt. And he put in a, a light I'd never seen before. He said that doubt is often shamed by Christians and kind of pushed into the 
the secrets of our lives. He says, when wrecked, and in fact, Christians should probably accept doubt. We should claim doubt. You should almost, in fact, be proud of doubt. He said this, doubt is not the opposite of faith, which is how we often treat it as Christians. If you're doubting, you're not having faith. Just have faith. There's no need to doubt that. But he said doubt only exists, if you think about it, if there is faith. The opposite of of faith is not doubt. It's non-belief. Right? I mean, it's not having faith. If you're doubting, that means there's something that you're holding on to. There's something that you want to wrestle towards. There's something that you're committed to. Because as Christians, doubt is, is something that's normal. It's natural. It's actually, perhaps in some cases, a good sign. To be able to wrestle through that with your community. To be able to be honest about that. The author of Hebrews, I think, is, is so intent. He'll, he'll say again, don't stop meeting with each other. No matter what you do, he says, keep getting together. Keep encouraging each other. Keep strengthening each other. Because this is not this easy task we're after. There are distractions. There are things that will catch your attention and take you away. There are things that can trip you up. There are things that you can only accomplish with the community that God has, has given you. I think that the community, the body of Christ, is necessary. And so here's what I want to challenge you with this morning. I want us to maybe spend some time this morning and today evaluating how plugged in we are with the Christian community, with our local community of believers. And then, and then maybe figure out one or two small but effective steps we can take to go even further. I think the more plugged in, the more we're known And the more we know others in our local Christian community, the more healthy we will be as Christians. The better able we'll be able to to run faithfully, to keep our eyes on Christ, to worship him and to follow him. And so the first thing I want to say is I want to say I want to encourage you to connect with your local community, okay? Um, I think there are three people that you need to know and be known by. The first type of people are people who are different from you. Um, so people who think differently, who see the world differently, who have different political beliefs than you, who like different sports teams, okay, who, who like different fashion styles, people who, who are just differently wired than you, people who you normally wouldn't hang out with. I think it's important that those kind of Christians you associate with, that you have those people in your life. I think you need people who are not your age. So if you're young, I think you need to know and be known by people who are older than you. And if you're older... I think you need to know and be known by people who are younger than you. Um, there's this, this weird thing that happens in churches where uh, we segregate age groups so that right, all the 14-year-olds stay together and all the 18-year-olds stay together and all the 22-year-olds stay together and all the 30-year-olds stay together. And what you're doing is you're just collectively pulling ignorance, right? <laughs> let's get all the 14-year-olds who know nothing about how to live life. Let's let them brainstorm about how to live life together, right? Let's let all the new parents who have never done this before raising kids just stay together and try to figure it out on their own. Instead of mixing cross-generational, getting different perspectives, getting experience and wisdom, you know, different ages. And then I think you do, you, you, there's truth to this, there's beauty to this. You do need to, to know and be known by people who are like you, who are similar to you, who you would probably be friends with either way, who you can just play with, who you can just be silly with, who you can relax around. And so here, here would be, I think, some suggestions for you um, if you were going to evaluate how plugged in you are and say, maybe I, I just don't have close community with people who are older than me or younger than me, or maybe I just don't have community with people who are different from me. Um, a couple suggestions. It's all about intentionality. And, and I might say this. You can be helped if you eat, play, and pray intentionally. 
if you eat intentionally, eating, having a meal with someone, I think it's just the, the best way you can cultivate a relationship. Um, not too long ago, there was a popular business uh, man who wrote a book about networking. And he was real famous for, for being this genius, kind of savvy networker. And he said what happened is one day he woke up and realized that he ate two of his three meals a day alone, breakfast and lunch. Uh, and very rarely was he eating with other people, or at least other people who he didn't know very well. And then he'd eat dinner with his family. And he thought, that's a lot of wasted time where I could be getting to know people. It was a time thing for him, time management. So he made a promise to himself. He said, I will never, ever eat alone again in my life. Breakfast and lunch. And it became almost an adventure to him. Like, can I meet a new client? Can I get a new business partner? Can I meet someone? I've got no one for lunch today. Hey, will you like, give me a random friend who you think would be up for just meeting a new person? Can I eat lunch with them today? And after like 10 or 15 years, he was the most networked person that you'd ever meet. I mean, he had so many friends, he had so much experience, he had so many perspectives, and I just thought, what a great idea for Christians, I mean, what a great idea for the church, to be able to just come in and be like, I'm just not going to eat alone anymore. I'm, I'm just going to expand my relationship, expand my boundaries. If, if you're finding that you have no deep community with people who are older than you, maybe just go ask someone older than you if, if y'all can get lunch, if you can eat dinner. If, if someone who, who's different from you, can we go, can we go eat, can we go... We go grab something to eat and get to know each other over a meal. Take a survey. Be like, look, political beliefs. Are you a Democrat? Let's go eat, okay? I mean, I don't know how you're going to do this, right? But, but somehow evaluate your life and kind of see where your community might be lacking. Say, I want to get to know you. I want to be known by you. Eat intentionally. Play intentionally. I think this works well. What are your hobbies? What things do you enjoy doing? Just relax with people. Have fun. Goof off a little bit. And then, then pray intentionally. There's something, I think, about praying with other people that draws you close together. I don't think it has to be an intense Bible study, an intense study group, or anything like that, but, but praying. Pray intentionally. Maybe if you, you prayed with more people, maybe if you prayed spontaneously with more people, you'd, you'd find yourself forming these deeper bonds. And here's the second thing I, I would encourage you to do. Not only connect with your local community, but rediscover your roots in the historical community of the church. Get to know the church historically. You have Gideon, you have Samson, you have Barak, you have David, you have Samuel. And then you have people from then on all the way up until today, church history. One of the things I'm convinced that has caused us to, to, to kind of lose our sense of identity as God's people is that we've forgotten our history. We've forgotten where we came from and who brought us here. Um, and what I've found from personal experience is the more I've gotten to know about the characters in the scriptures and the characters who came after them, our founding fathers, if you will, the more I've felt this sense of identity and belonging. I'm a part of this family. I'm a part of this team. I'm a part of this movement. So three suggestions I could give you to, to rediscovering your roots as the historical church. Okay, The first one is um, get to know the church calendar. I don't know if you're aware, the church has this very established calendar, um, just as uh, we do. Calendars unite societies, they unite cultures, they put everyone <coughs> on the same page. They put everyone in the same moods and the same spirits. And so there's this kind of Western calendar, there's the American calendar, okay, and we, we celebrate Christmas, and everyone decorates for Christmas, and you have Easter, and you have Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and you have um, Founders Day, and you have Veterans Day, and Memorial Day, and, and all these holidays, all these um, calendar breaks bring us together as a group of people, as citizens of America. Well, the church has its own calendar, and it's meant to do that as well. 
And that's one of the things we're trying to do at FCQ more and more and more is move into the, the rhythms and the seasons of the church calendar. The church has days where they celebrate heroes of faith, church fathers, people who have been martyred, people who have sacrificed their life. The church has rhythms throughout the year. So we'll be celebrating Lent. We're going to be preaching through um, March 5th. Lent starts. This is 40 days before Easter where the church kind of gets ready to, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection, gets really ready to experience his death and, and participate in the resurrection life that he brings. And so we're going to preach through the book of Lamentations called Tears and Tragedy. We'll do a little series as we, we go through the season of Lent. We want to kind of get in the same rhythm as the rest of the church historically and globally. I'll also be leading a little study, a little shameless plug. We'll be going through Bonhoeffer's little devotional called God is on the Cross. Um, it's less than two pages every day, 40 little devotionals. Uh, if you're interested in that, uh, more details will be coming. There's a little sign-up sheet out there. It's not a commitment, but if you're interested, I'll keep you in the loop uh, with planning for that. Uh, we'll kind of go through that again to try to get into the, the season of Lent, try to get into that, that attitude to prepare ourselves to worship. So the church calendar, um, church history, I think is important. And it's not always easy. I get it. These guys have weird names, and they did weird things, and they thought about weird things. But history is something that unites cultures. It unites societies. There's a reason we teach our kids American history and Texas history. Because it makes good Americans, and it makes good Texans. As a, a teacher at a high school, and, and particularly as one who we've been reworking our curriculum in, in our department, I've spent some time thinking about what kind of students and kids are created by what type of material you allow them to spend time in. And I think if your child, if a child, if our generation is more familiar with American history and Texas history than they are with church history... This is a, a sign of where your priorities are ultimately going to be, of where you're going to feel your deepest sense of citizenship, your deepest sense of loyalty, of identity. Now, don't hear me. There's nothing wrong with being American. There's nothing wrong with being a Texan, okay? I was born in Texas, raised in Texas. It's all better here, all right? I get it. I'm there. I'm on board. But there's almost this frightening sense in which Christians in our context have completely forgotten and thrown aside any sense of knowing about what's happened in the church before us. And I think that's dangerous. I, I think that we can be um, enlightened and, and, and edified by learning more about church history. And then the third thing is, is church prayers. The church has these practices of praying and these texts that are regularly prayed together. I think um, you and I sometimes get pigeonholed into only praying spontaneous prayers that we think of at spontaneous times in which we might be benefited actually by praying at set times that the church historically and globally has prayed during and set prayers and set texts that the church has historically and globally prayed through together praying with the church and not necessarily just praying in the church that's something that i've found to be helpful um, in my own life let us run together this race looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What I'm worried about is that you will attempt to be a Christian in an Eleanor Ruby type of way. Where you sit behind a window and you're not known. Or one day you, you're buried and your name disappears with you. No one ever knew you. Or you'll, you'll attempt to be a Christian in this Father McKenzie way. 
You'll never be able to share with others. You'll, you'll have these sermons. I mean, everyone in this room has these sermons, has these experiences that they can share, this wisdom that they can share, these struggles and doubts that they can share. But, but sometimes no one hears. They're never told. No one shows up. As a preacher, I mean, this is kind of a haunting line always in my mind. Writing the words of a sermon that no one will hear. Working and living and working and living. In the end, it makes no difference. You leave the empty service and no one was changed. And then I'm even more scared as a Christian who I think is seeing church history being forgotten. That you've got these sermons and these ideas and experiences of the church historically that are being forgotten. These fathers who have written the sermons, these people who have explored the scriptures and what the Christian life is meant to be, and, and we're not even trying to listen. We're just trying to make it up as we go. We're just trying to do the best that we can on the fly. But that's not what we've been called to. We've been, we've been called to be a people united around Christ. We've been called to a pe- be a people who are known and who know each other. And so let me challenge you this morning to, to plug into the church community even further. We'll, in just a minute, participate in the Eucharist. We'll come up and, and participate in communion. This is not only a sign of our devotion to Christ, this is also a sign of our community together. We all come to the same table. On the Lord's Sunday, all the churches in the world come to the table. We're united around a common table. Early on, this was an entire meal. This was a way of eating intentionally with people. I'm breaking bread with you because you are my brother in Christ. You are my sister in Christ. We come and we're called to not only follow Christ, but to to connect with each other so that we might run together and run faithfully. Will you pray with me? Father, we